0: Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our December 1st, 2011 edition of the show, 4.07 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regions. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarsen at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarsen. Back in 2009, when the American financial collapse and mortgage meltdown were still fresh and many were hunting for answers, one particularly lucid book came along that offered a clear and concise explanation for what had gone wrong and what needed to be done. That book was The Looting of America, How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions, and Prosperity. Author Les Leopold talked to us about it here two years ago. Uh, now that we have an uh, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street movement that seems at least indirectly influenced by this book, among others, I thought it would be good to have Les back on the show to share his thoughts on what's been going on. Les Leopold co-founded and directs 2 nonprofit educational organizations, the Labor Institute and the Public Health Institute, where he uh, designs... Research and Educational Programs on Occupational Safety and Health, the Environment and Economics. He holds a Master's in Public Administration from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And he is our guest today. Welcome to the show, Les Leopold.
1: Hey, thanks for having me again.
0: It's great to have you back. And uh, just was, uh, you know, I've been really uh, focused on this uh, Occupy Wall Street movement over the last uh, couple of months. It's been uh, really intriguing and exciting and heartening in certain ways. And so I wanted to uh, talk to different people who I felt really kind of were forerunners uh, to the, you know, what's happening now. And and your book was just really such a, had a huge impact on me and others. And so, I want to go over some of that if you know so before we uh, get into what's going on today and, and get your thoughts on mm-hmm. that I'd, I'd like to you know go back over some of what you laid out two years ago in the looting of America in, uh you know i this because uh, i I think it's it's books like this that that have uh, resulted in the awakening we are experiencing now. So if you could first talk about maybe how, uh, something you laid out in the book, how wages for average working Americans have stagnated or even gone down in the last few uh, decades, how that happened and what that led to.
1: Yeah, there's um, one chart in the book that's, I think, absolutely critical for everybody to understand. As a matter of fact, if they understood nothing else in the book, that one chart's the one I hope to get across, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. It it, it shows uh, how uh, this thing called productivity and wages uh, relate to each other. Productivity is, unfortunately, the best measure we have for the wealth of a nation. It, 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 It says uh, it, it measures our level of knowledge, technique, coordination, uh, the skills of our workforce, how all that comes together to produce all the goods and services in our economy. And it's, it's, a, it's measured on a per-hour basis. So the more, the more things and more services you can produce per hour, uh, the more opportunities you're going to have in society. What's interesting was from World War II uh, all the way to the mid-1970s, Productivity went up every year, and so did the average wage of the average worker, uh, year in and year out. I kind of grew up during that period. I'm, I think, a little older than you, uh, and I got to see it firsthand. I saw my working-class parents have their lives improved a little bit year in and year out. The whole neighborhood got a little better year in and year out. I could see that my parents, like, for the first time could actually take a vacation. Uh, they, my sister went to a state school. By the time I got to go to college in the '60s, they could actually afford to chip in uh, for a pri- uh, you know a private college. Uh, you know, the standard of living was going up, and this was during the Cold War, and we were we were the envy of the world. Everybody kind of wanted to be like the American worker who was becoming middle class. Well, something amazing happened in the mid 1970s because. We experienced uh, some economic difficulties, and the academic establishment, the economists especially, uh, said that the only way to move forward now is we have to unleash our economic potential, and that is we've got to deregulate the economy, uh, which was much more regulated than today, and we especially have to deregulate finance, and we have to reduce taxes on the super-rich Uh, and that's what we did, and we entered into this incredible uh, experiment for the next 30 years. Well, those two lines that went up together, uh, productivity and wages, those two lines then split apart. Wages stayed flat and started to go down, and all this is measured in, you know, uh, inflation, uh, non-inflation dollars, and productivity just kept going up and up and up. It got, and so the question becomes, where did all that, wealth come from because when those two lines pull apart it means that if working people aren't getting the money somebody else has to be getting it mm-hmm. and where it went was into the into the 1% the 1% got absolutely filthy rich look there have been plenty there were plenty of millionaires and plenty of rich people in the 50s and 60s you know in those days it used to be the doctor in town they were the or the owner of the small uh, factory or the manager of a large factory well you know what happened after the 1970s. It was the, it was the Wall Street person that became the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the elite of the elites, and they pulled up the whole wage scale of all the other corporate elites. One measure, uh, I'll come back to that in a second, but what happened is these two lines are pull, pull, pulled apart. And what happened, all that money that now went to the elites had to be invested someplace. And the the deregulated Wall Street was brilliant in one way. They figured out how to basically set up an elaborate casino so that the super-rich could play. And they entered into the most amazing uh, kinds of bets, where people were betting on things that they didn't own uh, in in the wildest ways. It's like me and you betting on a football game. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like playing fantasy football, fantasy uh, baseball. We pretended to own uh, players that we, of course, don't really own. Well, that was happening on a large scale, and it was happening all. It turned out that the best way to play the game was around. the housing market and especially around subprime loans loans that went to people who didn't have really good uh uh, credit ratings that was the place to play the game and it puffed up an enormous housing bubble and as soon as those housing prices started to level off just a little bit the whole casino collapsed Mm. and when it came down uh, the whole economy came, uh, ground to a standstill because all these bets were uh, littered all over the world. We called them toxic assets, toxic waste, financial waste, and it turned out that we, the taxpayers, had to pay for it. And the story goes on from there in ways that I could not foresee at the time that I wrote the book. It got even worse.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is out the rabbit hole, KUCI in Irvine, Robert Larson here, and I'm speaking with Les Leopold, and we're talking about his book, The Looting of America, How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions, and Prosperity, and What We Can Do About It. And so, yeah, I want to make sure we got this really clear, because it's really I think it's really important, and that is that uh, w- wages for average working Americans w- – were going up whenever productivity went up, which was what happening for decades. And then in the seventies, right. it was this split. And and you, I want to make sure we understand this. It was because of a variety of things. And deregulation was one. Uh, lower lowering taxes on the uh, very wealthy is another. And uh, 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 union busting, I think, had something to do with that as well as the wages sure. were going all down. Th-
1: all those things came together. But ultimately, what happened was it put too much money in the hands of the few, and it unleashed Wall Street from all the restrictions that had been placed on it during the Great Depression, when we knew that you had to control Wall Street to keep your economy from collapsing. We unlearned that lesson, and we changed the tax code dramatically. To give you a picture of how much we changed the tax code, in the 1950s, the marginal tax rate, the amount of money that millionaires paid on the last dollar of their income was 91%. The effective tax rate now on the super rich is more like 18 to 16 percent. I mean, we just cut the heck out of taxes on the super rich, gave an enormous amount of extra uh, money. We have uh, hedge fund people now who make $2 million an hour. In one hour, the average top 10 hedge fund executives make as much as an average American family makes in 47 years. Think about that for a second. One hour equals 47 years. Well, if you've got all that amount of money, uh, it means nothing to you to engage in reckless uh, financial gambling. And you kn- you're smart enough to know that, look, if it goes wrong, the federal government's got to come in to bail to bail us out because we're too big to fail. Uh and that, that's what happened, like, uh, it's so clear, you could see it so clearly, too much money in the hands of a few, combined with deregulation, equals a crash. That's what the splitting of those two lines uh, tells us.
0: And to get back to the hedge fund manager, you said uh, sometimes make as much as $2 million an hour, and is it not true that their income tax rate is somewhere around 15%,
1: 18%? Well, lots of them have... Uh, uh, you're right on the money there. Uh, uh, lots of them take advantage of something called the carried interest uh, loophole, where their income from running the hedge funds, uh, they usually get 20% of the profits that they uh, engender. Their income gets treated as capital gains instead of regular income. Meanwhile, someone who works in another institution and is being paid a salary and also gets a percentage of the money they make, they've got to pay full uh full income taxes at mm-hmm. the 35% rate. Yeah. So it's an incredible boondoggle. The richest people, and, and there's no justification for it. Not only that, it's unclear whether the hedge funds produce anything of value at all for our economy. So it's, it, 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 it's even worse. But but what this all set up, what I really want folks to understand, is it set up this debt crisis that we were, walt- that were waltzing into, because the economy tanked. This crash, this Wall Street-induced crash, killed 8 million jobs in a matter of months. Those jobs haven't come back. We're at, we're at record uh, post-World War II uh, unemployment levels, and the real rate is something like 18 percent, not 9 percent. Uh, and uh, when you count all the uh, part-time people who want full-time jobs and the people who dropped out of the uh, labor force, et cetera, et cetera, where there's a shortfall of 20 million jobs. And there's a shortfall uh, because those people aren't working. Of course, uh, taxes, uh, the tax uh, revenues are down, so states are suffering. The federal government has a bigger debt because it has to spend money on uh, uh, not only on, on the wars that we don't need, but it has to spend money on the unemployed. Uh, and it's got to it's got to try to fill the hole that was created, the economic hole created by the collapse of these fictitious, you know, Wall Street bets. Now, at the same time trying to do that, The w- Wall Street, the markets are saying, oh, you can't have that much debt, otherwise we may not get repaid. So they are pressuring the federal government to further cut, uh, and, and states are doing as well, cut back on uh, uh, number of federal employees, cut back on state and local employees, which of course then leads to more losses of revenues, and more cuts uh, leads to a downward spiral. Uh, And this is where Occupy Wall Street comes in. Uh, I I had been screaming, really, like a, a madman almost for, like, you know, Two years, three years—that this this craziness has got to stop. We shouldn't be talking about that. We should be talking about uh, going after the super rich, the financial elites, and get them to pay for the damage they cause. That's not a difficult concept, and I knew it would it would resonate with Americans. But none of the political leaders had the guts to talk about it. Well, Occupy Wall Street did, and they when they said Occupy Wall Street, and when they said ninety nine percent, one percent, they hit it right. On the head, perfectly, because the problem is Wall Street. Nowhere else. There are other yes, there are other issues with corporations, etc. But you know, GM and, and Chrysler did not uh, uh, cause, and Ford did not cause the economic crisis. Uh, it was caused on Wall Street, and Wall Street should pay for the damage. It, uh, it's done, and it should be dramatically changed. Dramatically changed. And Occupy Wall Street dramatized, gave drama. To what needed to be dramatically changed, uh, and and they actually succeeded in shifting the terms of the debate. Uh, think about it. Last summer, President Obama, a Democrat. For the first time ever, a Democrat was willing to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid in exchange uh, for some big debt package, which he thought would make him look great. Well, then came along the August unemployment numbers, and no new jobs were created, and, and they went into a panic. Then came along Occupy Wall Street, and all of a sudden the conversation changed. Now it was going to be about jobs. Now it was everybody was using the 99% framework. It was brilliant. But it's only a start, and we should talk about that in a bit, too.
0: Yeah, yeah I think the, the awakening that, that Occupy Wall Street represents is that the corporations, the banks, and more specifically Wall Street, you know, own everything, and, and, and most importantly, our government. You know, things have gotten so far off track because of actions or inactions of the government. And those actions or inactions are because the government feels more beholden to that owning class than they do to the working class. Are, are you feeling that Occupy Wall Street is basically getting that?
1: Oh, I, I, I'm not. Yeah, they're getting it. But uh, as a matter of fact, I just wrote a piece uh, a couple of days ago for alternate.org, uh that uh, talked about these Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg News revelations that actually there's a, there was a secret government uh, between Wall Street and Washington that was running, and they weren't even telling the Congress uh, how much money that they were uh, uh, using to bail out Wall Street. It wasn't $700 billion that uh, we've all heard about in the TARP program. It was seven point seven seven trillion dollars, and they and at the very time when Congress was deliberating about whether to bring Glass Steagall back in, you know, separating out the uh, uh, investment banking from commercial banking, going back to that and breaking up the big banks, which got bigger during the uh, during during the crisis, uh, using the secret money to buy you know buy each other up, uh, it while that was being deliberated in, uh uh, in Congress, uh, Congress was told that the banks were actually healthy and they were uh, passing their stress test. Meanwhile, they were gobbling up $7.77 trillion in loans, which led to uh, $13 billion in quick profits uh, because they got money, basically got money for free we were able to uh, invest it and take that money and make that profit. That was enough money, by the way. We gave them, in, not just the $7.7 trillion, we gave them enough money in profits without telling anybody, enough money that we could have hired 325,000 teachers, mm-hmm. entry-level teachers. I mean, that's, that's what $13 uh, billion turns out to be. Anyway, uh, the secret government operates... Uh, between Wall Street and the Treasury and, and the Federal Reserve, they think they know how to run the country. So, Wall Street, in a way, Occupy Wall uh, Occupy Wall Street maybe isn't conspiratorial enough. <laughs> uh, I think we're just finding we're just we're seeing the tip of the iceberg.
0: And, and but so, the next the, step is: no, go what ahead. Do the
1: rest of us do. You know, I, I, I can't sleep on the street. I can't occupy. But somehow the rest of us have to get involved in this. The 99% have to show its colors. And it's not going to happen through elections. We need to have some other way to dramatize uh, uh, this ripoff, to dramatize how how, uh, – to to keep Occupy Wall Street uh, spreading, uh, to keep the 99% – Framework spreading throughout the rest of the community. And I've got a couple of ideas on how to do that.
0: Okay, and y- your article, at that, that's alternate, uh, org.
1: Yeah, actually, I've got one right now, another one. Uh, what's, what's the one today called? Uh, yeah, it's today. It's, it's right up there now. It's the headline. Six Shocking Revelations About Wall Street's Secret Government.
0: Six shocking alternate. revelations, yeah, about uh, Wall Street secret government. Alternate dot org. Les Leopold. Yes, yeah,
1: it's the lead piece.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right, that that's a great website. Uh, long articles, but well worth reading. <laughs> I always get very informed from Alternate. I put, some, I
1: put some simple charts in it, so there won't be as much to read.
0: <laughs> all right, so yeah, the um, I want to go back a little bit here to what we we're talking about a few minutes sure. earlier, and and that is that. What you you talked about the uh, wages not tracking with productivity? This started around in the 1970s. Productivity kept going up and up, and, and wages for regular working Americans didn't. But of course, wages for the one percent did w- went up astronomically. And and what it seems to be, what you point out in the book, and I, I've you know read this elsewhere as well, is that in this earlier time period, 50s and 60s, when we had. Uh, much higher taxes on the wealthy, when we had more regulations on corporations and banks, when we uh, had uh, stronger unions, when we had more tariffs, and uh, all these things that right-wingers hate, the economy was more stable. And when when you allow regular working people to have a decent wage where they can be spending money on, on the necessities of life and minor little luxuries, it, this is very healthy for the economy and, and money spreads around. But when you put money, you let it concentrate in these obscene levels and up with the 1%, they do crazy things with the money, and the the uh, casino, uh, uh, turning Wall Street into a co- uh, casino, and the fantasy finance. And so, so that's the basic bottom line, is that we need to not let money concentrate with the 1% to these extreme levels.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. But, but you have to also understand that... Um, the fraction of 1%, the financial lead is actually smaller than 1%, let's say one-tenth of 1%. They don't care whatsoever about the average American. They have no idea what the how the rest of us live. They are making their money off a global system that they're able to siphon off. There's a hidden tax that they're taking out of the global economic system, and I uh, that system has been deregulated to such a degree that it's almost impossible in the short run to put the toothpaste back in the tube unless there's a dramatically large powerful movement created. Wall Street is not going to give up its power its influence, and its money without a tremendous fight to think there's going to that this that that somehow we're just going to kind of uh, uh, drift and push a little bit into 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 the changes we need is uh, uh just not realistic. They're going to hang on. Uh, they see they are not threatened by the two political parties. They are a little worried, however, by what could be unleashed by a broader Occupy Wall Street. They don't like what they see in Greece. They don't like what they they don't like seeing people on the street. That kind of gets in their way. And uh, the language uh, and what this is all about is a genuine made-in-American populist movement like the one we had back in the 1880s and 90s. I've been doing a lot of reading about that, and I hope that's going to be in. I've got another book coming out soon on hedge funds, uh, and then I've got one coming out after that that's going to be uh, more about the things we're talking about right now. And I've been looking a lot at this, at this populist movement, and they were directly aimed at trying to democratize Wall Street. They knew that... Uh, High finance, left to its own devices, would cripple American democracy, and certainly was destroying farmers. And they had plans for how to uh, democratize uh, Wall Street. We're going to need not only those plans, but we're going to need a massive populist movement, a 99% movement that uh, uh, threatens their interests. Then maybe there can be some serious negotiations about how to share, uh, how to get our, Get our wealth back. Get it back into the hands of people uh, who actually uh, need it, use it, and create it, for that matter.
0: So, Les, what are some s- specific things that we can be doing as a more expansive ninety-nine percent to to uh, build up our uh, uh, power so that we can actually stand up to these? Uh, to this,
1: I'm so glad you asked because <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm actually the next piece I'm writing for Alternet probably be up. Uh, next week is exactly about that. Uh, I, I, I'm experimenting. I, I'm throwing out this idea and, and seeing whether or not I can get any uh, people to uh, buy it. I think we should set up 99% clubs, uh, and they don't have to be. They can be totally horizontal, decentralized. You just set up a club. Call yourself and get a couple people together, call yourself a 99% club, and then start to do stuff. What stuff, could, you could do stuff that's uh, little, like passing out lethal to the local bank about, you know, local, one of the, you know, National Chase or whatever, Big Bank, Bank of America, about, uh, you know, all the money they got, all the bailouts they got, and all the, uh, you know, uh, uh Stuff that they've done wrong and what their executives make, that kind of stuff. Uh, so which you could do, like, in a sense, public education. Or you could do uh, more dramatic things with Occupy Wall Street. Or you could, you know, uh, start efforts to demand that student loans be uh, uh, cut back or that uh, tuitions be cut back or whatever. But a group of people that identifies itself as a 99% club uh, would be incredibly useful because it becomes a... Uh, uh, a tactile symbol, just like Occupy Wall Street, of the framework, and it's a place where we can learn to work together. Let's say you got you know ten people together on, you know in Irvine on campus uh, to start a club. Who knows what you might end up doing? And you know if we got a lot of clubs going, let's say a thousand in the next several months across the country then you could start, you know, then we can use social media to communicate and to share ideas and maybe do some things at the same time. And you've got places now where people can go uh, that, uh, you know, in a sense where the rest of the 99% can actually go. And if you don't really like what Club X is doing, you set up your own you don't have they don't have to be all in one place they don't have to all do the same thing they don't have to be it doesn't have to be under any national leadership it can be totally horizontal and i have a feeling that uh, once a few of these got going people would be creative enough for example i was talking to some people actually longshoremen up in the bay area and they're thinking of helping their own members fight back against evictions, you know, like showing up when the when the sheriff shows up, and try to prevent evictions. Well, if they call that could be a good thing for 99% clubs to do, the ones that maybe are more a little more aggressive. Uh, like I said, they can go all the way from doing uh, Occupy Wall Street activities to you know more activities that uh, we old folks like to do, the educational stuff, uh, and and everything in between. Anyway, I, I'm. I want to see whether or not there's any juice for that. Uh, if there is, I, I you know, I, I could see uh, a kind of common identity emerging. Like, how do we know we're the 99 percent? Well, we're working in 99 percent clubs to try to uh, push the idea, to try to to uh, dramatize the difference between the one percent and the 99 percent, and hopefully build something powerful enough to make some changes.
0: Well, yeah, I am hopeful about this, and I do – you mentioned the the thing about stopping the evictions. I did read something, it was a day or two ago, about – I think they're calling it the – Occupy Our Houses campaign, and where people are getting together, and uh, people affiliated with Occupy Wall Street, and uh, there's a situation where somebody is is being evicted, a a foreclosure, and and often a situation where the banks have have improperly and often illegally uh, pushed the foreclosure along, and getting all their... uh, People together in stopping the the foreclosure from going forward, and uh, or at least requiring the authorities to have to use uh, uh, some force or to uh, arrest people. So they're creating a, a drama, and this is creating more of a, a, an awareness about what is going on, and and things like this. It reminds me of, of earlier decades in the depression and the, and those eras when there were a lot of these foreclosures going on then and right. people and there were, there was this thing i mean about that people who that there was such hatred for the banks that there were uh, people who were like bank robbers that uh, may have been uh, unsavory characters, but still were kind of thought of as as sort of folk heroes, kind of hero antihero, because they were standing up to the banks. And you know, like the Woody Guthrie had the song about uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, and, and these kinds of things. But I mean, I think we're getting to that point of of that the level of hatred toward the banks is is
1: there. Yeah. Well, look, you know, if people want to call them occupy clubs. That would be great, but the important thing is it needs to be easily replicated right mm-hmm. it needs to be uh, something where uh, where it can, where people can do a lot of things in other words they don't have to just do one thing you know uh, i I would love to see a mass a, a mass movement to you know st- stop uh, evictions if that caught on that would be great uh, I'm for anything catching on but somehow we need places for the for everybody else to to, to get involved and uh, I'm wide open, but uh, anything, anything we can do to encourage that kind of self-activity. And I, it needs to have a little bit of an organizational identity. I want, to, I want to be able to go someplace and meet with other people. I want other people to go someplace and meet with other people. Uh, because we need to, uh, it, a movement isn't a movement until we start to kind of identify with each other. And, uh, and, and it needs to be porous. Everybody, you know, we, we want to have the doors open so that people can come in. And if, the, if they want to do something that others aren't quite ready to do, they can form their own club and do it. We don't need to have, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't need to be monolithic. But, heck, you know, that sounds great if that caught on. Uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak to uh, a, a coalition in New Jersey next week where they're kind of interested in thinking about something like that. And I'll definitely mention uh, uh this you know oc- uh, oc- what occupy call? occupy our, our houses, occupy our houses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I liked That's, it. Uh, Peter Olney. Uh, yeah, he's he's sharp. Is, yeah. is it happening in the south or just in the north now? Y- you know,
0: I didn't catch all the details on it. I had to read it rather quickly. It was in the middle of a few things, but I saw that this was happening, and there were a couple of actions taking place here and there. And I there, I also was heartened by uh, something that happened recently, was the Move Your Money campaign. And that was where there was a particular day where everybody was being encouraged to... Uh, move their money out of the big banks and put it into uh, smaller credit unions that uh, weren't in, involved in all of this uh, nasty stuff uh, we've cool. been talking about. See, now
1: imagine, imagine you have a thousand clubs across the country or ten thousand clubs. Now think about you move your money day. Well, you would you would have those those clubs might decide to all work together on that, right? And they could share information about what credit union, you know, I, where I am back east i don't, I don't see any place to move my money that easily, so if I'm stuck in a big bank, where do I move it and imagine if we all did it at the same time we went you know we did it like in public, burned our draft cards, burned our old credit cards from the old bank. we could get a lot of press uh, and then more people would feel like it was an effective action so so we need I, I'm arguing for uh, the, the, the to set up some kind of infrastructure I'm a little concerned about Uh, the faith that somehow this is all going to just sputter forward through Facebook and Twitter and somehow, you know, it's all going to happen. I don't know. I I think it needs more than that. Uh, Certainly the lessons from the populist movement in the 1890s was, and and they had, you know, they had their own, uh, you know, very uh, uh, big actions as well, and they did their version of occupying as well. But they were well-organized, too. They had, they had a structure. And, and, and it was, what was great is it, it, it reinforced this common identity, you know, that, that they were the populace. Millions of them saw themselves as the populace. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we saw ourselves as the occupiers or so the 99 percenters? Right now, I'm worried that the occupiers are going to become kind of a vanguard, you know, a group that the rest of us are kind of going to watch, you know, yeah. wish them well. Mm-hmm. They're taking the lead, but you know I'm not really an occupier because I'm not going to occupy very much. Mm-hmm. That's not my thing. I'm not going to be sleeping in the park. Uh, you know I gotta, I gotta be dealing with you know my kind of more bread and butter issues, and I'm more like most Americans. Uh, if I you know if I was younger, footloose, fancy free, hey, sounds like fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, it is a young person's thing, and it is many of these people uh, doing this are uh, doing it because they don't have jobs. And uh, which is, uh, I'm, it's, it's sad that they don't have jobs, but the uh, uh, the fact is if you, you're unemployed and there is no work out there, it does allow you more time. To, to uh, Many of us are having to, to be at a job every day, so, and some of us are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet. Uh, but because we would
1: of, have enough time to come to a 99% club or an Occupy club. We would have enough. To, you know, if we showed up once a week or once every two weeks, talk about what to do next, might be fun. Uh, y- you know, I agree. It might be actually fun to get together with, you know, uh, uh, in a – because what we're creating is a kind of new political space, right? We're not door-knocking for some candidate that we don't know and can barely, you know, stomach in most cases, you mm-hmm. know, because we hate the other guy so much more. We're not, we're not doing the lesser to evil stuff. We're actually trying to create a new, fu- a new future that democratizes uh, Wall Street in some fundamental way uh it's an enormous challenge but you know i the people connection is what i'm hoping to see so there's like concentric circles uh not concentric circles a bunch of circles that spin out from maybe uh uh the more active occupy wall street folks who uh, who now are going to have a new challenge which is when you can't occupy what do you do Mm -hmm. who are you Mm -hmm. uh so uh you know, I'm hoping that that some sort of club network. Look, uh, I saw how this worked. In you know, there was SDS in the 1960s, sure. And many campuses had an SDS chapter. Who the hell knew? You know, you didn't get a charter. You just had a, you know, somebody just said, "I'm an SDS," and they <laughs> <laughs> they set it up. And they and some of them did a lot of good stuff. Uh, it, you know, uh, it, you don't need to have a tightly – I mean, I think the great thing about Occupy Wall Street is they showed us that you don't need this tightly controlled, you know, operation. You don't need a, a national organization to pull these things off, a 501c3 and, you know, or a four or What You know, you don't need these structures. But uh, we do need gathering places for everybody else. Uh,
0: I think. Well, I think uh, that that is going to be happening. If you know, to I think, in some sense, it is happening uh, a bit, but it needs to be uh, more more organized. And you, you're very right on that. You, the people out camping, the occupiers. This is great. This is important. This is visual. This is emotional. We need that. We need the groups gatherings. Uh, people that can can't be out there camping out, but can get together and share information and educate each other. The actions, moving your money out of the big banks. The Occupy houses, uh, you know, to stop foreclosures, ev- evictions that are improper, and just all these kinds of educational things. And I think uh, we- we're going to make it happen. We have to make it happen because the alternative is is just uh, too uh, grim. And yeah, yeah,
1: actually, we should talk a little bit about what the alternative really is, because uh, the alternative, uh, I think, is uh, uh, you're starting to see it in Europe, and you're going to see it here as well. Now, these are the richest countries in the world, right? Most, uh, And you're going to see a ever-increasing demand to cut back on our standard of living. Now, remember, the average worker has basically seen their standard of living decline since the mid-1970s. Yeah, they may have more things, but they're working harder, and their wife's working now, and the, uh, you know, the husband's working several jobs, like you said. Uh, but you're going to see... A bigger uh, deterioration of infrastructure. I, I understand your roads are already falling apart out there, and it mm. used to be the envy of the world. Your educational system was the envy of the world, and there's all kinds of cutbacks going on there. You're going to see, you know, the idea of, you know, young young people are going to have to work uh, longer to get their social security. Which uh, you might even see social security privatized. Imagine that. That's Wall Street's wet dream to get their hands mm-hmm. on on that huge pot of money to uh, to invest it for us. Just think how how, how lovely that'll be during the next crash. Yeah. Uh, So you're going to see this. this, uh, uh, In order to eliminate debts that the quote-unquote markets find unpalatable. who are the markets? The large banks, the large hedge funds, um, drive those markets. They want to be sure that they get paid back, even though we just bailed them out. They now want to get their pound of flesh from us and if we don't do anything about it, they will get it. They will shift the conversation again and again towards uh, cutbacks, cut, cut, cutbacks. And, yeah, okay, maybe there will be some tax increases, we'll see, uh, on the super rich. I'm not holding my breath on that. I see the cutbacks coming uh, uh, much more than I see there are going to be uh, you know lots of taxes on, on the super rich, unless we get mobilized, unless we take advantage of the great opening that has been created by occupy wall street i wrote this other piece you know last week or whatever called occupy wall street is not a spectator sport the rest of us can't watch right we have to get engaged uh, and you know there, there's 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 really three you know activities there's the actual collective life of the movement whether there be clubs or occupy wall street there's media which is what you're doing which is incredibly valuable and then there's educational stuff, and education is valuable because it's more give and take. Uh, the populist movement in the, in the uh, late 1800s, yeah, it sounds like ancient history, and Jesus Christ, this guy's so old, he's talking about the 1890s. But let me tell you, this stuff, when you read it, your eyes pop out of your head. It's so current. They had 4,000 educators that went around the country that discussed uh, what was going on in the economy, and discussed common plans. And it was a lot of give and take. And out of that came this incredible idea for how they were going to uh, basically eliminate Wall Street's control over, over the money supply, over the, over, the, over the financial economy. At that point, there was no Federal Reserve, and the, a few big banks in Wall Street literally were the Federal Reserve, ran the uh, supply of gold, uh, controlled the banking system, and they had—they were—they were, they were going to do away with it. They—they they had an alternative to it that they—that they proselytized, and the average person in the movement understood how that worked. It was remarkably successful. The educational campaign. We're going to need something like that too. We need a network of, uh, you know, uh, several thousand uh, economic educators that could go out to you know communities, high schools, colleges, etc., and keep the discussion alive. So there's a lot of things we need to do. But it'd be nice if we had some more visual places where we can gather and talk about this stuff. Well, let's all be thinking. I thank thinking. you actually for having for you know creating this space on on the airways. We may only have you know a few people listening, but you never know.
0: Well, I thank you for for being here with us, and and yeah, we we need to make that happen. And, and just the fact that we're talking about it now, and there are some people listening, and that we we spread the word, and somebody's going to come up with that very. Uh, uh, good uh, uh, strategy to make this – to really come together where we can educate people. You know, you talk about that, the populist movement in the 1890s, and the, people think of that as ancient history. When I read about that, you yeah, know, I get goosebumps. I, I'm like, it's so it's so powerful, and this is – you know, that people saw themselves a, as, as one, that they saw – we, we know what, what the problem is and we're all together being victimized by this we're going to stop being victims and we need to, to gather our strength together and we can change this but we need to educate everybody and and I, and I see that happening and there's a lot of different things we can be doing and we're talking today with uh, Les Leopold and uh, he's got a great book that you need to check out and that is The Looting of America How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions and Prosperity and What We Can Do About It. It, and you can also find him writing quite regularly at Alternet and have some great ideas about all of this and uh, so I, we don 't have a whole lot of time left here unless i 'd like to touch on something and and that is uh, uh, personal debt and w- th- this is a big issue and the because of the reasons you stated about wages uh, for working Americans stagnating, one of the things that uh, we as mer- working Americans have done is taking on a lot more debt to try to hang on to being middle class, and one of those is like credit card debt the other things as well. And this is really exploding, and this is becoming a big crisis. And there's also the problem of student loan debt, and uh, because... College education has become so much more expensive, so much less covered uh, by the government. And in these student loans, there are many people who will never pay these off. And uh, if you have any thoughts specifically about that personal debt issue.
1: Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's start with uh, 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 the student debt. Uh, to be a citizen, a productive citizen in the modern, modern world, you've got to go to college. And in order to go to college, you're going to run up debt. Now, after World War II, again, during this era where we were willing to constrain the extremes of wealth, you know, the, the GI Bill of Rights basically produced free higher education for 8 million returning vets. 3 million took advantage of it. you can go to Harvard for free. You get in, you go for free. Uh, now, for a long time, California had a virtually free uh, Educational system, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, yes. Depending on where you could get, a community college, four year college, one of the more prestigious ones, it was free. Uh, and you know, of course, that was thrown out the window. Now, uh, it seems to me that uh, a very strong case could be made that these student debts should be entirely forgive, forgiven. Uh, they weren't run up so you could live high in the hog and you know get drunk at your at your frat house. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they, they they were run up so you could get through school. And either you have them, or your family has them, or you both have them. And it's because of an understanding that you need an educated workforce. Uh, well, look, you need to be educated to be, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, a decent citizen, and a, a democratic citizen in a complicated, you know, advanced uh, world, advanced technological world. And you need it to compete on an, in- an international basis. To uh, You know, and look, we have problems now to solve on the environment that are, you know, humongous. We need smart people uh, to deal with that. So education is a necessity. Uh, it ought to be a public good. And I think a very strong case can be made to forgive the debts. These are not debts where, you know, you ran out, you, you ran up a debt, you know, in Vegas. This is one where you got yourself educated. Now, of course, there's a huge, you know, we're perfectly willing to pump uh, $7.7 trillion into, into a handful of Wall Street banks. Why aren't we willing to uh, uh, invest in relieving, a generation of uh, of all its debts. If we can't get it all, let's get you know get some partially done. I think there's a, 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 a strong movement to be built about around that because it's an incredibly positive case can be made. It has nothing to do with being profligate. It has nothing to do with you know. Uh, Greeks living, you know, drinking too much, too much retsina and living high in the hog, you know, or whatever stereotypes are out there. We're talking about hard-working kids. that now have to spend, you know, the rest of their lives paying off their debts. They can't get rid of them through bankruptcy. Uh, they're stuck with them. And the way, and this, this, this is a there's a parallel here. Let's go back to these farmers in, uh, you know, the 1880s. Uh, they, they became indentured servants because they had to borrow money to get through the winter. Uh, before their next crops uh, were sold. And the crops were, were always decreasing in value because of the Wa- Wall Street-controlled money supply was c- uh, constantly uh, lowering the prices of, the, of what they would get. Yeah, but their debt stayed, stayed high. Mm-hmm. Well, we're having the same thing now. In a sense, we're having uh, the wages you're going to get as a college graduate are not going to be what you expected. It's going to be harder and harder to pay these things back. And you're going to be, in a sense forever working for the man that's by the way they used to call the that small merchant the man that's where that phrase comes from working mm-hmm. for the man back from the 1880s wow. well we're going to be working for the man uh, uh, and, and, and kids that are not so fortunate to have their parents uh, be able to you know put them through school are going to be working for the man uh, you know a chunk of your income is going to be going back to pay back these loans that were necessary for you to be produce uh, so I I, I think I think there a case for forgiveness. There, uh, elimination is very strong. You know what to do about uh, people. You know you, you got a problem. Uh, uh, you know we bail out the banks, but we don't bail out the homeowners. We bail out the people that caused the problem, that put the money out there, that accepted uh, you know all kinds of uh, uh, outrageous uh, finan- built outrageous financial products that turned out to be worthless. Those people we bail out those people who uh literally killed 8 million jobs in a matter of months we bail them out we don't bail out the homeowners we yeah. don't have to bail out the homeowners because we they're afraid and people say well don't bail out these you know credit people who took out mortgages they can't afford well you know if you went through that list of people that took out uh these mortgages you'll find that a lot of these second mortgages were not just for you know a new mercedes but for were for medical bills and all kinds of other uh uh, ways to make ends meet and to put people put their kids through college mm-hmm. so that i think there's a strong case for also uh, for at least refinancing now that interest rates are you know zero just about or very low you know you can get loans for uh three percent instead of being pay, stuck in a ten percent mortgage it all should, we should you know we should make it easy for people to refinance i mean there's a lot of stuff that can, can be done but the place to attack the debt issue i think is on the student the student loans yeah. The other thing is, uh, uh, we got Occupy Wall Street is important because it shifts the conversation against blaming individuals. Uh, individuals did not cause this problem. This is a systemic problem caused from deregulating Wall Street, and putting too much hands, uh, too much money in the hands of a few. And uh, we got to stay on that. Uh, we have to stay on message there. Otherwise, we're going to be literally slitting our own throats.
0: Yeah, well we could talk for uh, much longer here, uh um <clears throat> Les, but we're out of time. I I really appreciate your thoughts and always uh, wise uh uh information here for us and um I uh can we get you back on the show when your next book is out? Any
1: time. Okay. Sure, absolutely. I'd, I'd, no no problem. Hey look, keep me posted. If anything, you know, uh, blossoms up out there, because I, I like to share these. I, you know, whatever comes up, I want to share with others, and it's important for us to communicate. Keep up the good work. Your show is great. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to blab and test out ideas, and uh, let's see if anything, uh, anything sticks.
0: Okay. Well, great. And did you want to give out a, a personal website or anything else before we go? Uh, uh, oh, last. I've
1: got one you know, lootingofamerica.org or whatever. But, uh, you know, best place right now is uh, go to alternate.org. You know, they're, they're, they've they're they got a lot of, you know, good articles in there, and they try to make them interesting. And a bunch of us try to write some good stuff for them, and I think it's a good place to stay informed.
0: Oh, it's a great place, yeah, alternate uh, dot org. Les Leopold, uh, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Really appreciate no, it.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Take care
0: okay yes and that book again is the looting of america how wall street's game of fantasy finance destroyed our jobs pensions and prosperity and what we can do about it and it's one of those books that if you you kind of think you sort of understand what happened with the meltdown uh y- you need to check this out because it, it's going to really make you understand it and, and it puts it in a very simple way but full of facts and it's good for people who just uh don't understand it at all or are believing the right wing lies. The looting of America. Check that out. Okay. Les Leopold was our guest today. We got to close it out here. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. We got Matt Kaplan ready to go here in just a couple minutes with Counterspin and Planetary Radio. Always good stuff. I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents, and if you want to give me some feedback on the show, you can email me at rglarson at org. Robert Larson here saying I will be talking to you next week. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.